Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. In last week's episode, we looked at diversity and inclusion in the law, where we are in the legal profession with respect to DNI, and the fact that while we have made some strides, we still have a ways to go. Today, we will continue to look at the importance of diversity and inclusion in the law, which will include a provocative exploration of its intersection with other areas we have looked at, such as emotional intelligence. I will be chatting with the general counsel who has been practicing law for many years, both in private practice as well as in-house, and who also served as the executive director of a nonprofit whose mission is focused on improving diversity in the bar. It is an honor to be welcoming my good friend, Jason Brown, to the show. Jason is Vice President, General Counsel, and Secretary of Dyson. In this role, Jason is responsible for all legal and regulatory matters that impact the North and South American business of this British technology company, known for its superior vacuum cleaners, bladeless fans, high-speed hand dryers, and innovative personal care products. Jason manages a team of lawyers and legal professionals handling a variety of issues involving litigation, corporate compliance, data privacy, cybersecurity, product safety, commercial contracts, and advertising and promotional claims. Before Jason's role at Dyson, he was Associate General Counsel at Miller Coors from 2012 to 2013. Before that position, Jason was the Executive Director and General Counsel of the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, also known as NAMWOLF, from 2010 to 2012. Before his stint at NAMWOLF, Jason was the Director of Legal for Pepsi Americas, Inc., from 2003 to 2010. Before Jason started his career as an in-house attorney, he was an associate at two law firms, Winthrop & Weinstein and Ungaretti and & Harris, where he practiced in the area of litigation. It is my pleasure to join my good friend, Jason Brown, in this provocative and interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Tina, for inviting me. I'm excited about our upcoming conversation. So why don't we kick things off by you sharing with our listeners a little bit about your professional background. You've been practicing law for about 20 years now. 20 years, yes. Mm -hmm. And you've had a wonderful career trajectory. You've experienced a lot of different things. Thank you. And I would love to hear a little bit more about it. I'm sure our listeners would too, and about what the intersection has been between your career experiences and your passion for diversity and inclusion. Okay, well, yeah, so I graduated from Howard University Law School about 20 years ago, so it's kind of funny to think about that, but yeah, it's been about <laughs> 20 years. But I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, so my first job out of law school was a litigation associate at a medium-sized law firm in Minneapolis okay. called Winthrop & Weinstein. So I actually started my career back at home, only spent a few years there, I had a great time. I mean, great market. I was able to do a lot of work. One of them, which a lot of people, even my close friends don't know, but I was 
very actively engaged in the NAACP when I just started my career. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was actually started by a pro bono opportunity, and then all of a sudden I found myself being brought in, actively engaged in the organization, actively engaged in leadership, and then <laughs> right before I eventually left, I was the president of the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP for about wow, six months. Wow, that's fantastic. I didn't know transition. that. Yes, but yeah, so when you talk about diversity and that kind of thing and, and just that issue, just from the very beginning of my career. So so I left Minneapolis, I was recruited to come to Chicago and work for a law firm, Ungaretti and Harris, no longer exist as it was then, but Ungaretti and Harris as a litigation associate and was there for a couple of years before the recruiters were calling for an in-house opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's there I found myself with Pepsi Americas. Gotcha. So did the law firm thing, moved to Pepsi Americas. And at Pepsi Americas, I was involved in just about everything. That's where I really mm-hmm. kind of cut my teeth. I think I, I really grew as a lawyer, did everything from managing litigation to start out with helping to build the, the compliance program within Pepsi Americas. Mm-hmm. From that, I started doing work with sales and marketing and supporting mm-hmm. the IT team and just kind of rounding out my career as an in-house generalist, which some would say paving the way to become a general counsel. But honestly, I had... Mm-hmm. No thoughts of that at the time. It was really about learning and growing. Well, and it sounds like you did a lot of different things. You really spread your wings outside of litigation into other things that were really timely for the time that you started at Pepsi Americas. Absolutely. And, and I think it was, and that's one thing I would tell everyone within their career is, is you've got to strike while the iron's hot mm-hmm. and usually don't turn things down, especially if it's a growth opportunity and fear of not really being a business lawyer, not really wanting to work on the corporate side, focusing mainly on litigation in the start of my career. I realized that once I was in-house, you know what, it's all legal. And right. I have the mindset and, and the ability to do it. I should jump in. So that's where I really started to government relations, you name it. Mm-hmm. I just kind of tried to spread my wings as much as I could for the eight years that I was there. Wow, that's a long time to be there, especially yes. your first in-house gig. <laughs> yes, it was. But Pepsi America was great for me, great worked great to me. Enjoyed my time there. Um, near the last four years or so that I was at Pepsi, um, we started getting involved as an organization into NAMWL, gotcha. uh, the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. Mm-hmm. And so um, Pepsi Americas is one of the anchor bottlers for, or was one of the anchor bottlers for PepsiCo. Okay. PepsiCo was one of the principal um, supporters, uh, sponsors you know, um, for NAMWL, and they encouraged their bottlers and other affiliate corporations to, to consider and look into Amwolf and, and Pepsi America's did, and we actually jumped in <laughs> with both feet. And it was through that that I, I was, uh, uh, my boss at the time, Scott Nays, asked me if I wanted to uh, take a look at it, and, and mm-hmm. since I managed litigation and, and also was involved in other areas to see if we could connect and utilize some of these law firms. In typical me fashion, jumped in, <laughs> and then a few years later, I was their first in-house counsel board member. So the first non-member law firm person to sit on the board of directors at NAMWOLF. So that was a great eye-opening experience to kind of look at it from their lens of all being partners at majority or large law firms and then Mm -hmm. feeling the the need to branch out from there so that they could actually pursue what they wanted to do in their career, build the firm that they wanted, Mm -hmm. starting out and they have their own law firms. But then the challenges of finding work right. with that. So that was exciting. So, yeah, so because of that, <laughs> when the time came for me to make a move or a transition from Pepsi, mm-hmm. NAMWOLF presented itself with an opportunity to be, for me to be their first executive director. 
and that was a, a challenge. That it took a while. There's a few mentors of mine that I could mention that that really helped me think through mm-hmm. this opportunity and taking this deviation because it's not practicing law, mm-hmm. but it is in an industry that I love as far as diversity, mm-hmm. but focusing within being surrounded by lawyers all the time and talking them through how they attack this problem, mm-hmm. attack this issue, but then focusing on really building the infrastructure of a growing organization. Mm-hmm. NAMWOLF at the time was there, had I think around 60 to 75 law firms, somewhere around there. And was that about 2010 that you started there? That was about 2010. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. But then by the time I left, we had 115 law firms. I mean, we grew, the revenue grew. Mm-hmm. We had to move to different space. It was exciting to see hit our 10th anniversary. And it was, it was, it was, it was quite an awesome experience for me. And the two years that I was there, we kind of built up a strong vision, mm-hmm. a strategic plan was put in place. And, and now as I look back six years from now, I see all of those things, or eight years from now, actually, I see all of those things kind of coming through. Well, and a good friend of ours is still over there and actually replaced you at Wolf, Joel Stern, right? And it's funny because Joel Stern was one of the mentors I could mention that I actually convinced me. <laughs> I vividly remember the, the meeting that we had and, and the conversation we had. And he was like, you know what? If you don't take it. I will. No. The <laughs> it was almost he there. He almost did. But he said, you know, if you don't take it, you'll think about it. And that's going to be the one thing that you regret. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was absolutely right. And I said, yeah, because if somebody else was in that seat, I'd be wondering what I could have done with that opportunity to really catapult the organization into the next, into the future. And uh, so I'm thrilled that I did. That's great. And then you did Miller Coors after yes. that? Yes. I had actually knew I always wanted to come back to the law. I knew I was going to return to an in-house position. Mm-hmm. And uh, so two years after Nam Wolf, I did make that transition and went to Miller Coors. Mm-hmm. So stayed in the beverage business, but this side, <laughs> a little bit of a <laughs> alcohol, a little alcohol in it. But that was a, also another awesome experience. I was the associate general counsel there, mm-hmm. reporting to the general counsel. Kelly Greeby, who was fantastic, once again, still allowed me to kind of, you know, push the agenda of diversity, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in NAMWOL firms, bringing in just a different perspective to how we went about approaching the department and the business, right. which was great. Miller Coors, just in general, had a pretty solid supplier diversity mm-hmm. plan. It's just legal being weaved into it. It's just not been a something that everyone was just accustomed to. So it was just right. great kind of being a part of that. Interesting. And then from there, I landed my current job the general counsel for the Americas for Dyson. Mm-hmm. So I've been here for a little over four years. Hard to believe it's been that long. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's kind of a shock to sit back and think about it. But yeah, but Dyson also has been a very dynamic organization, obviously technology company dealing more with home appliances and, and moving obviously as far away from beverages as you can. But still the complexity, just how interesting it is as a company has just been phenomenal for me. And then my growth as an attorney being the general counsel for this market. So I cover Canada, US, and uh, all of Latin America. Mm-hmm. That has definitely been a great growth experience for me. So, Well, and we've known each other now for probably about 15 years, mm-hmm. I'd say. Mm-hmm. And you and I have had, and that's why I'm so excited about our conversation, we've talked so many times over the years about diversity and inclusion and what it means and what it means in the context of the world, but also what it means in the context of the law. And when you look back on your career, which has been amazing so far, and there is going to be, you know, going to be going, you know, nowhere but up from here, I'm sure. <laughs> what does diversity and inclusion mean to you today? And because you've mentioned when you were going through the chronology of your career, several pivotal points, which I think are just a few of the many, where DNI 
was really part of what you were trying to ingrain in the culture, something that you felt you needed to pay it forward. That's just the essence of who you are. How has DNI shifted over the course of your career in the different contexts in which you've practiced? Yeah, I think it's it's been interesting. I think 20 years ago, when I remember really talking about and focusing on DNI, everyone was really focused on the numbers. We were very mm-hmm. numbers oriented. How many we had, how many we had versus last year. And then as people were trying to grab at those numbers to kind of bring people in, then it turned into this conversation about tolerance, which I never liked the word. I didn't like the, the connotation. And people were focusing on like, well, we need to build programs where people are, you know, can understand tolerance and deal with the fact that we've tried to create a diverse workplace. Right. And fortunately, we got away from that whole term of tolerance and moved it really to inclusion, which is what it should have been actually from the beginning. And, and now people are focusing on, okay, well, wait a minute. Now that we have the means to identify and bring in this exceptional talent, what is it that we're doing within our culture to foster the type of environment that actually allows them to bring their best here, to encourage that so that they can grow and as a company, we can grow. So what I've seen over time really has been a difference between us just kind of pointing at people saying, okay, look, we want brochures to look different, Mm -hmm. to actually understanding the true value of diversity in the very first place, and that's actually bringing the very best end to the organization. So in terms of, you know, as a corollary to that, in terms of how the conversation has changed, the tolerance, I agree with you, is such a almost a pejorative term. And it starts from a negative rather than a positive. Yes. And I just recall that we've had this conversation about this whole, you know, sort of contrast as well as this discussion about how it isn't just smart business, it's the right thing to do. Do you want to comment on that? Because that whole conversation, I mean, the way that people characterize what diversity is and why you should do it, I have a fundamental problem with trying to, you know, I guess, distill everything down, you know, that the essence becomes that when it's so much more layered and nuanced than that. Yeah, it is. It's heavily layered and nuanced. I mean, there's several different ways that you can look at it. I think if I sit here as in-house counsel and you're going to ask me, why is it important that you staff teams in a diverse way? I, I will say because I, I get the best out of that. Mm-hmm. All factors are considered, all ideas. You're bringing the best when you put a fully diverse team at the table. And I believe that fervently, and I've seen it in action where you know people actually, they grow from interactions with one another because, hey, I never thought about that idea. And then they bring something else to the table. Yes, and then there's this. And then right. all of a sudden, based on your experience, your background, or, or um, you know, just how your life is and, mm-hmm. and it, you know, you bring, you know, something more to the table. I think that's outstanding and it allows as a company, it allows you to grow and think more because you're not just looking at certain segments of your consumer base. Right. Um, you're actually taking a step back and being able to look at it more broadly because you have representatives from those other bases um, within the company. So mm-hmm. it is much more layered than that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I also think just, you know, inherently we have a fundamental responsibility, I believe, um, to ensure that the opportunities that are available are open to everybody. And I think that's one thing I, I think sometimes gets missed out is that it is, um, we do it in some way, shape, or form, maybe not on purpose, mm-hmm. um, but think in, th- think in terms or in ways that we close out opportunities to certain groups of people. We self-segregate or, or, or discriminate in a way, but not thinking that we do, but we do. And we need to be honest with ourselves and own that and realize that if we're going to 
um, succeed and become better as a as a company, as a firm, as a as a nation, mm-hmm. um, that we need to be more open. Um, we need to be more inclusive and not just allow them in the door, but actually have something that they can contribute and, and see where that takes us. Right. And I and I agree with you completely on that. And that's something that we're going to touch on a little bit later is the recruiting conversation mm-hmm. and the retention and promotion conversation, as well as you know, what has really become a big focal point of the conversation recently, which is unconscious bias and how there's this intersection between creating opportunities, making sure that we really do create opportunities for people, not just can you apply for the job, but once you're here, understanding that sometimes there are, there's uh, just dialogues and there's dynamics that end up being created where people really don't end up having a chance and a real chance, whether it's at the job in the first instance or whether it's being able to be promoted and deciding to stay in an organization long term. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, So again, drawing from your experience over the years um, in your career, as well as the really fine work that you've done with trade associations, such as the Association of Corporate Counsel, um, you've taken part in trying to create a diverse workforce. Yes. And um, whether it's for the organizations you're at or whether it's for organizations that participate, for example, in the trade associations that you've been active in, what is the framework that you've used over the years to try to create a diverse workforce? And to the extent that it's shifted over time, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, no, I think that the formula is is – the framework, as you put it, you know, essentially can be the same. I think obviously every company is a little bit different and there's some nuances to it. But I think you always have to fundamentally start with, okay, where are we? Right. And be very brutally honest with where you are and have an assessment of that. Um, too often people just jump immediately to to trying to um, bring in different groups of people and that kind of thing with, without really taking a, a full self-assessment as to where they are mm-hmm. um, and what they need, what are the gaps, and what may be contributing to their inability to recruit or retain um, certain talent. So mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing you need to do. Um, then after that, I think there's a, that honest look at, okay, well, what, where do we want to be? Right. You know, where do we want to go? And, and that needs to be specific. That can't be your, um, um, kind of pie in the sky, um, um idealistic, idealistic yeah. <laughs> view that we've seen in commercials where everyone's hugging each other and that kind of stuff, <laughs> which is great. But, but let's, let's be honest. What is it? And, and also let's, let's try to make some measurable, steps and improvements to get there so that as you're planning it and as you're growing, you actually have these things that you can say, hey, we've achieved that. We've gotten better. We've done what we've wanted to do. I think sometimes we, we, we many groups make a mistake of actually trying to do all of it at once. Mm-hmm. And and they go and they they have a massive recruiting focus and they bring in a bunch of people. And while the people are there, they try to change the culture. And then mm-hmm. ultimately you end up being chaotic, you don't have focus, you don't have vision, because you're trying to achieve all this in one fail swoop. I just think that you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, you need to, like I said, start from 
a base of understanding where you are, define mm-hmm. what your goals are, um, which, I mean, businesses have been doing this kind of thing in other areas all mm-hmm. the time. Um, but then be very systematic and realistic with what you can achieve. Uh, maybe you start with a department. Maybe you just start with a particular area. Maybe mm-hmm. you start identifying, well, wait a minute, we've got a number of women here, but for some strange reason, we're not retaining any of them. Mm-hmm. So instead of starting to try to recruit broadly and bring in other segments of mis- underrepresented people, let's start with what we have here and make it better for them. Right. And then and let's focus on that. And then you move to the step, next level and step and start to make systematic improvements of the culture so that when you do go out and recruit other groups, you have a more welcoming culture where they actually stay. Yes. And I think, I mean, that's a terrific answer and I completely agree with you on it. And I think one thing I've seen having been in private practice for 25 years, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is the need to make sure that there is alignment between the ideals and goals that you set from a DNI perspective for your organization and the and the business. Yes. You know, because what you can't do, and I think what is a recipe for failure is setting terrific goals that may be very realistic, but if you don't consider them in the context of the business and all the aspects of the business and the workforce that composes the business, you have to really take into consideration what that sort of looks like and what the cadences of of, de- of developments, of recruiting people, yep. where you recruit them, and making sure that you're optimizing your DNI efforts with who in general ends up succeeding at the organization. Yeah, and I think one thing I, I, I didn't mention that, that when you were talking to you, I just remembered, within that, within a law firm, within a corporation, you have to have... I mean, very, very clear, and it's more than the the phrase buy-in. You have to have um, advocates from the most powerful people within that organization that this is what's important to the organization. This is what we're going to do, and and that's what really helps fuel what you talk talk about that change and those guidelines and those specifics and those that pushes. Because if you're seeing your most partners within the firm are just paying lip service to diversity and they're like, well, this is what we have to do. We've got to put it on the brochure, but they really don't care. You're not going to change anything because everyone that works with them is going to understand that. And it's going to really um, start to impact the the impact, the results that you get because it is lip service. Other people know it because the senior, most people are not talking about it in meetings. They're not talking about it in evaluations at the end of the year. They're not talking about it when they're looking over all the numbers of how the firm or how the company has done diversity is not mentioned. If that's the case, then clearly you're going to fail because it is not a priority. How do you, um, especially in dealing with a culture where you may have some folks that totally get it, um, and you've got some folks at senior levels who, ha- who are pro- providing the buy-in, but as your diversity program is rolling forward and it beco- becomes a period of weeks and months, sometimes these things lose steam and lose momentum. How do you keep the momentum of a DNI framework within an organization running strong. Yeah, and I think it's got to go, as I said, like those step changes. I think there's mm-hmm. got to be targets that you put out there that you're trying to achieve, and you have benchmarks and times that you go back to check on it. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, you're right. It just becomes one of those things that you talked about once at a meeting two years ago, right. and then you're like, hey, how did that work? But if it becomes a part of your strategic framework, much like every company, and it depends on the company. Some companies look at financials every week. Some look at them every month. Some look at them every quarter. Um, but they're always looking at to see what the results are because that obviously drives how the business is doing. There's other metrics within that that you look at, whether it's headcount, mm-hmm. 
um, how certain things are, are working and how you know, people are responding to your advertising, that kind of thing. That should be one of those metrics that you look, like, look at mm-hmm. when you're talking about the health of your organization. Like I said, it's probably not weekly. Uh, maybe it's not monthly, but, but essentially at least quarterly or biannually, um, at a minimum annually, yes. where you go back and say, hey, this is what we set out to achieve. How did we achieve against that? And then if we, if we succeeded, great. What helped us become successful? Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that we, we double down on that next year so we can strive to make next year's goals. If we didn't achieve it, why not? What right. are the things that we failed to do? As, as what, how, Who took their foot off the gas, so to speak? Mm-hmm. How do we take that off the ball? What are the things we can, we can correct? If you're not looking at that, if you're not setting it up as a specific plan that senior leaders are looking at in evaluating the success of the company, you're right. It is going to fizzle and no one's going to pay attention to it because it's clearly not valuable. Right. So switching gears just a little bit, I know that you get this question a lot. Um, how much do companies that are looking to hire outside counsel truly weigh diversity? I know a lot of them pay lip service. A lot of will say in an RFP context, for example, that you need to tell us law firm A, you know, Acme Law Firm, you know, what your um, DNI initiative is, how you make sure that your teams are staffed with diversity, what is your proposed team and so forth. But when you think about it, when you look at how these scenarios typically play out after an RFP is awarded to a particular firm and they get the work and they move forward, honestly, how, how much is it really valued by companies? And that is one of those questions where the lawyer, the lawyer answer me will tell you, it depends. <laughs> and honestly, uh, to be brutally honest, it depends on the company mm-hmm. and it varies, right? You will have both camps. You will have companies that are, are pushing it because it is a company directive. They want diversity. It's important to them. They have the expectation that the law firm is delivering it. But at the same time, they either don't have the resources mm-hmm. or the bandwidth or the drive to really police their law firms when it comes to how they're succeeding on their DNI initiatives. They'll pay attention to your bills to make sure that you're on budget and you're staying you know, within the rates that you have agreed to. Because the company will definitely come down on them talking about that. Mm-hmm. But whether or not they actually go back and really push their law firms based on diversity, really it depends on, on the company. I know companies who do, and I know mm-hmm. companies who do very strongly. They track it. I know that they reward firms who do very well, mm-hmm. that achieve common goals and, and, and that kind of thing with more work. And I know firms that tell you in the very beginning that they have strong desire that their law firms are focused on diversity. But because of resources, because of bandwidth, or a whole host of other reasons, mm-hmm. they're like, look, I trust that, just like I trust you to do my work in an honest way, that you're being honest with me, that diversity is important to you and that you're going to do your best to get there. So I'm not going to be big brother and really look over this. But if for some strange reason, I see that you're going way beyond or way kind of outside of what you had promised me before, then I'll make a decision. But it really varies, Tina. Very, it varies on which companies are so proactive that they'll pull work from a firm because of their failure in D&I. Well, I was going to ask you, so sort of taking what you were saying about there are some companies that are very proactive about it. I'm just curious, and on the spectrum of what being proactive about it means, how often, based on your experience knowing other general counsel and other yeah. in-house counsel, how often do they actually pull work if their outside law firm is not meeting the metrics and the goals that yeah. they've set? I will say this. I have heard pull work is probably the wrong phrase. What I will say is the phrase is there's law firms that may be well-suited for a certain amount of work, 
and a certain opportunity, and they won't get that work versus another firm mm-hmm. because of how well that other firm is performing on diversity vis-a-vis that firm. I've had conversations with general counsels who've said they pro- definitely, when they have a matter come up and they're talking to their associate general counsels or deputies or assistant general counsels about the firms that could do the work, they do ask, mm-hmm. what's their track record on these things? And so there gotcha. are firms that do get rewarded based on that. Okay. Um, as far as being fired or taking off a matter or something like that, because of failure in DNI, I don't think that happens that much. So the word pull work is probably wrong. But I definitely have had conversations. I've known that if you have a bad track record with diversity, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be removed from our preferred counsel list, but you won't be high up on our preferred counsel list when it comes to the matters that come down the pipe. Gotcha. So it sounds like when it comes to monitoring outside counsel, it's interesting because you would think that you could just hit a button and be able to determine from a metrics perspective whether when you get, especially if you've got an e-billing system, that you'd be able to tell in terms of on a percentage basis how much of the work is being done at particular billing rates so you can tell how much of it is being done by partners versus associates. You would think that it's easier to monitor the outside performance when, from a DNI perspective for a law firm than it sounds like it really is. Yeah, you would think it is. And I, and I think it's it's still because it's it's a time that's invested in, in actually going through it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about time. Like how much time are we going to sit down and, and actually go over that? How much time are we going to invest? What's our benchmark? Like what's the one thing that we're looking at? Obviously, we want to keep increasing and going up, but what's that trigger that's going to bring your deputy general counsel to come into your office and say, oh my goodness, you need to look at so-and-so's bills for the last six months. They have not staffed anyone diverse in any other matters, blah, 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 you know, those kind mm-hmm. of things. I mean, those conversations, hopefully those type of conversations aren't happening, but right. but I do think it don't, I don't want anyone to believe that, that it's not happening and that review isn't there, but I don't want anyone to have the perception that every single line in every bill Every single solitary category that's there is being viewed at a mm-hmm. high level, even with e-billing and how it's set up by right. the deputy GCs that do. Very rarely are GCs reviewing bills anyway, so let's be honest. Like it, It's not mm-hmm. something that is a part of the day-to-day for most general counsels that I know is reviewing it. There's other folks that are right. reviewing it, and you just have to make sure that those people that are reviewing those bills to that detail is reviewing it. Okay, so Jason, it's hard to believe our time is almost up for our, the first segment of our interview. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, and where can they find you? My name is Jason L. Brown. I usually always use the L. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because there are a few other Jason Browns out there. (laughs) Jason Brown's a very popular name, but Jason L. Brown. You can always find me and reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's usually the best. Just send me a message on LinkedIn. I try to be as as quickly as responsive as possible, Mm -hmm. but much inquiries can come through there. And as far as uh, parting thoughts, I would just say, I mean, honestly, when it comes to that relationship, I think at the end I was talking about Mm -hmm. the relationship between law firms and and in-house and kind of tracking that. Part of it, I think somebody had said to me a while ago is, you know, just the expectation that if we're going to partner, that we should be on the same page. And if diversity is important to me Mm -hmm. as a company, as a a leader in my company, but I want to pick a law firm and diversity is important to you, then, you know, we should share that. And I should not have to. You know, feel like I've got to check on you as if you're not being authentic with it. And I think when you develop a positive relationship with your outside counsel, it's the type of relationship where we work together on diversity issues as opposed to right. it being kind of a stick type of relationship. Right. Well, and I think that it really gets to the heart of what the essence of a great 
relationship is between outside and in-house counsel in, you know, attorneys and clients and being the trusted advisor. The critical part of that is trust. And so whether it's talking about DNI, whether it's, you know, talking about other bigger issues, legal issues, trust is such an important part of the relationship. It is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. It always will be. Yes, it always always will be. be. For better or worse, right? Yes, for better or worse, always will be. So, Well, thank you very much for joining me for this first segment, Jason, and I look forward to continuing our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. I hope that you've enjoyed laying the groundwork with me and Jason about the importance of diversity and inclusion in the law. In our next episode, Jason and I will continue our conversation and drill down further on the reasons why diversity and inclusion is where it is today and what we all can do to further the mission of diversity and inclusion. We hope that you will join us. I am your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.